are in a series on the last days in the world to come, in part because um, people were wanting to ask questions about the intermediate state, and then about the events towards the end of time that would come together. And to do that, I decided that I needed to uh, do a broader series that would give a foundation and a background. Otherwise, what happens is, as you're talking about this tree and this tree and this tree, the forest gets lost and people don't see it in context. So we've covered the uh, backdrop of the creation, the world that was before Noah, the world that presently is, and the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem that is to come. And I talked about the hinge points between those being the days of Noah and the scripture says uh, that the hinge point towards the end of the other one will also be like in the days of Noah. Then we looked at the, the human condition that we were created from the dust of the ground. God breathed into us the breath of life and we became living beings. And then at death, because we are subject to death, both physical and spiritual death, the body dies because the spirit goes back to God who gave it and the body goes back to the earth where it came from. But our hope is that that body will be transformed and raised and the spirit and the uh, body will be reunited in resurrection at the last day at the second coming and that's where we have to look at a lot of the details uh, coming up in the next few weeks. We then looked at the covenants of God. Last week, I uh, talked about the Noahic covenant. We talked about the Abrahamic covenant. We talked about the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant and then the new covenant and how these covenants unfold from each other. They don't replace each other. This notion of thinking one happens, then the other one happens and the first one is done away with is Christian theology, not complete Christian theology, but dominant in Christian theology, and it's a misunderstanding of the unfolding of the covenants. Uh, so today I want to talk about the kingdom of God, and I really want to talk about what I've called the kingdom from God. Uh, the reason for that is that these terms, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, uh, all have a tendency for us to think otherworldly. And there is another worldly aspect to it, but there is also an earthly aspect to it. And as I said at the beginning of the series, our tendency is to over-dichotomize heaven and earth. Um, uh, heaven, uh, or the place where God is, uh, is certainly uh, more encompassing than the earth, but it's not as if the earth is a no-God zone. Some humans would like it to be. Uh, but it is the focus of God's attention uh, and ultimately the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven will come to earth. And it really is the kingdom from God that we need to look at. So today I want to talk about that. That's problematic for us because we don't think of kingships. We think of presidents and prime ministers and that kind of thing. And so we don't quite have the mindset of the ancient world re regarding a kingdom. But this passage that was just read in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 10 it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in that one verse we really have kind of the foundation for this. The 
the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, will come from God and encompass the whole earth. And at that time, everything done on earth will be according to God's will as it is in heaven. Uh, there is a rebellion in the midst of the earth uh, that has the biblical text uh, telling us over and over that the human being is sinful. The human being works against God and we have to be changed. We have to be transformed. Um, and, and in some sense we have to be conquered uh, so that the kingdom of God will be on earth. So I want to talk first about what is a kingdom so that we have this. I, I have to do this a lot in the classes when I talk about uh, theological issues at the university. A kingdom has three components. It requires a person who is the monarch, person who is the king. And that king must have a territory. A uh, king without a territory isn't much of a king. And that king must have subjects or a people uh, over whom he is the sovereign. So you have to have this sovereign king. You have to have a boundary area. And you have to have a, uh, a people. Um, in heaven, God's throne uh, is fixed. So in Isaiah chapter 66. Uh, we'll look at that really briefly. Isaiah 66 uh, says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you could build for me? And where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now what the Lord is saying is that his throne room, if you will, is, is heaven. We'll talk more about that next week when we talk about uh, three heavens and the various places that are referred to in the English Bible as hell. But the idea is that uh, God sits and is enthroned in heaven and his footstool, if you think of the king sitting on a throne and having his foot on a footstool, earth is his footstool. So the idea is how are you going to build a... Uh, uh, a sanctuary that God uh, can sit in and rest in. Uh, we can't. Uh, he's created everything. But as there is a manifestation of the heavenly on the earth, as the tabernacle did, so in that sense there will be a kingdom on earth of God's reign in the same way that he reigns in heaven. So his throne is in heaven. The heavens are his land, if you will. And his subjects are the heavenly hosts, the angels of God, the myriads, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. And when he says, do this, they do it. Thy will done in heaven and on earth as it is in heaven. So what about God's kingdom on earth? Well, God's kingdom on earth is, uh, has a throne. Uh, it is the footstool of heaven, but it is his throne on earth, and that is Jerusalem, the place where he has set his name. And the land, which is the Lord's, in some sense the whole earth is the Lord's, but that land where his capital reigns is the promised land. And the primary subjects of the Lord, according to the scripture, are the children of Israel. He has selected a people 
to be his people. He will be their God. And so you have this uh, idea of God enthroned in heaven and God as sovereign over the earth. But the earth is a rebellious place. And there are other nations and there are other kings, even in the land which God claims as his own. And so the Bible addresses, and we don't have time to go through this, but the Bible using language of kings and battles and all of that stuff addresses the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, versus the kingdoms of man and the nations that rage against the Lord and against his Messiah. So with that backdrop, I want to talk specifically about the Lord as king. There there are plenty of passages that talk about this. We're just going to really quickly look at three psalms. So I'd like you to turn to Psalm uh, 24. It's a psalm you're familiar with. It's one that we use often as our call to uh, worship. Uh, And it gives us this notion of God as the king and sovereign over all the earth. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it. He founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood or sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord the right and righteousness from the God of his salvation. These are the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gate, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. So, this one who is coming, who will enthrone himself on earth and reign over all the earth is the Lord of heaven and the King of heaven whose glory will be seen throughout all of the earth. If you turn just a few pages to Psalm 29, you'll see again this idea of worship and majesty of the King. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Siren like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames uh, of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace over all the earth. Something that we wait for. And then one more passage before we actually look at how this kingdom unfolds on the earth. Psalm 47 uh, says this. Oh, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under his... uh, 
under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Shout praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. The princes of the world of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shield of the earth belongs to God. He is highly exalted. The kingdom of God will ultimately encompass this entire uh, creation and the, and the earth. And you have to see this in the terms of the ancient world. The ancient world, there were kings with their territories and their armies and their peoples. And the kings, would their glory would be to conquer those lands around them and absorb them into their kingdom. Now they did it by force. And then they controlled them by force. And in doing so, they were glorified. Uh, if you got a good king, that was good. More often than not, you got a bad king. And then another king would come in and take over that area. It's against that backdrop that the Lord is seen as a conquering king who will ultimately conquer this world and will bring glory to his people, to Israel. And as we know, that will include us and, and will also then rule the nations with a rod of iron. So, the kingdom is promised, as we saw last week, to David, and it's promised to the son of David, and that one is called the son of man, and so at the restoration of the kingdom of David, which will become the kingdom of God on earth, that kingdom will spread over all the earth. So last week I talked a little bit about the, uh, the covenant with David. We need to look at that just briefly. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I know that you slept and we've had a time change since then, so I can't just assume that you remember that text. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Who is this King of glory? the Lord of hosts, right? I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be the ruler over my people Israel. So we know who his his people are. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. You didn't do this, David. I did this. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. We know that's the promised land. That they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people of Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Obviously, Solomon fills this to some extent. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. 
but my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so in accordance with all these words and all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, if we had time, we could go through the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has a beautiful word picture. I'm, I'm looking for a, uh, a drawing of this, uh, of, a, of a tree that's been cut down. And out of that tree shoots a root. And out of that root, the branch of David, the root of Jesse. In other words, when it looks like David's line has been cut off, and the church looked at the line of David and said it's been cut off. Uh, and they agreed that the branch of David that has come is Jesus. But somehow, he's no longer the son of David. You get a replacement. He becomes the Lord of the church. And the church becomes the people of God. And the earth becomes the land of God. And these promises become null and void. And they are not null and void. They will be expanded to much of what the church believes, but it won't replace what the church has talked about. I want to I explain that in, in some context, um, but I, wanna, I want us to be clear that the one that's being spoken of ultimately as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is the Lord Jesus. So I asked you last week to look at uh, Luke chapter 1. Do a little review here, one verse, and then we'll move on. Luke chapter 1, and we read this uh, every Advent. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. When Gabriel comes to speak with Mary... We get to verse uh, 32, and he says, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So we have the Davidic covenant here. He will reign over the house of Jacob. Nothing about the church here. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. This is specifically Davidic covenant information that's going on. And that's critical for us to understand and to read the Gospels as the fulfillment of these and the development of these covenants that we talked about last last week. So I want you to look at one more passage in the Gospels before we go back to the book of Daniel. Um, in Mark chapter 11, we're we're in Lent, we're about to uh, go into Holy Week, and Holy Week begins with us with Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. And we need to see what that triumphal entry is to the Gospel writers. So in Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 11, beginning at uh, verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethage, near Bethany, uh, near the Mount of Olives, he and his two disciples, he said to them, Go to the village off opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever sat on. Bring it here. 
If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found the colt tied at the door outside the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them as the Lord had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And they spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the field. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna does not mean praise God. It means save us now. And it's an idea of the king uh, coming and defending his servants so that they are delivered. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the term for the Messiah. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna to the highest. So this is about the salvation of the Lord, the establishment of the kingdom of David. And they understood it because the prophet said, he will come on, the, on a donkey. Behold your king, Jerusalem, comes on a donkey. And so this imagery is not of a savior. It's the image of a king who will establish his kingship. Is he a savior? Of course he's a savior. He saves his subjects and he restores his kingdom. Now I want you to look at a passage that often we don't think about with the kingdom. There's so much we could do a whole series on the kingdom. I just have to hit high points here. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Unfortunately, we record this so you can look over it again and, you know, come up with questions and other stuff later. Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Notice the plural. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair, uh, his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and its wheels were a burning fire. That's the foundations of it there. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were open. Here is the Ancient of Days, the Lord God of Israel who is seated upon his throne, attended by all the angels and the hosts of heaven. This is the Lord of hosts, enthroned in heaven, who will judge all people, and the books are open. Just a few verses down, we get these words. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. This is the title that Jesus uses so much for himself in the Gospel of Luke. One like the son of man coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
Now, here is our Lord presented before God our Father. God our Father, the judge of the whole earth. And the Son of Man comes and is presented before Him. I wonder when that happens. Perhaps at His ascension. Because the parables talk about Him going to receive a kingdom. So it's important for us to understand what's going on. This is all connected to the kingdom and the idea of an earthly reign. In Acts 15, we don't have time to go into it, but when they start talking about the Gentiles, they quote Amos related to the Davidic covenant and the Gentiles being included in that Davidic covenant. So understanding the Davidic covenant and the restoration of Israel is really important. This is why the disciples asked Jesus after the resurrection, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Not to the Gentiles, Restore the kingdom to Israel that will then include the Gentiles. God has promised to give a kingdom and a throne over all the nations to the Son of Man. And this brings in two functions related to the idea of being the anointed one, being the Messiah, being the Christ. All those words mean the same thing. The one who is anointed. There are two people who are anointed in the Bible. Priests. And kings. And Jesus refers to both of them. For he is a priest. And he is a king. And so we have to look at that. We're going to look at that in a minute. But I want you to uh, understand that there's a broader context that I can't address. But I want you to be aware of it so you can uh, read it for yourself. In all of history, a king would establish the throne of his son. In some cases, the son succeeds him on his throne. And in some cases, the father establishes a throne for his son that is an expansion of his throne. The son at that time receives a bride and a kingdom. Sound familiar? This is the image of the kingdom to come. The bride is the body of the Messiah. And the kingdom that he will receive is the restored kingdom of his father David. All of this is seen in the parables. The parables are filled with this imagery. The imagery of a bridegroom, the imagery of a kingdom, the imagery of a son, all of that. It's, it's interpreted outside of that context, but virtually all of them are talking about that context. And so we see in Revelation chapter 19, I'd like you to turn there quickly just so that you can see this. Read the parables and read this chapter and it will give you uh, context. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 7, he says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Not the righteousness of faith, which brings us salvation. Not the filthy rags of our righteousness that we do by means of the flesh. But the righteousness of obedience that comes by following the Spirit. 
Then he said, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren and hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we have this bridegroom and marriage supper of the Lamb at the last time. And then in verse 11 it says, I saw a heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a, with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword that he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the, the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. You almost want to sing, Mine eyes have seen the glory. This is the coming of the Lord, right? And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See the marriage and the kingdom coming as a combination you need to watch for that and and you will notice that most of the prophecy buffs don't put those things together they separate them because they want to separate the church from the establishment of the kingdom of Israel that's replacement theology we should avoid that at all costs now let me get back to this notion of the priesthood and the kingship Psalm 110 And I know this is more than you can handle, but if I gave you everything, you'd really be choked. I just want you confused at a higher level of consciousness, and we'll work through it uh, in the weeks to come. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. So we know where the capital is going to be, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, I will deliver your enemies, and then I will establish your scepter, your kingdom, from Zion, from Jerusalem. The Lord will stretch forth your scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Yet holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink by the brook by the wayside. He will lift up his head. Here is the Father saying to my Lord, sit here and I will establish your kingdom. And that kingdom will be in Jerusalem and it will be over all the nations, all the tribes, 
all the languages, all who rebelled at Babel. And he says, not only are you a king, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now in Hebrews chapter 1, we, we find out who's being talked about. Because this quote is quoted throughout several places, but particularly in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For which to the angels did he say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. But when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of his angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and ministering of ministers flames of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you, made you Christ. With the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. And like a garment, they will be changed. New heaven and new earth. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. To which of the angels did he say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now you know that the book of Hebrews is about the high priest's ministry of Jesus as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But it begins with the idea that he is this king who will have a kingship. They are tied together. And they have to be understood that way or you won't understand the last days and the world to come. So, how does this work? Well, we're going to go into the detail later. But I want to give you a passage that shows that this is the purpose and the plan of God. These unfolding of the covenants and the kingdom to come. In 1 Corinthians, which we will visit a lot in the next several weeks, chapter 15, the one that talks about resurrection and talks about the resurrection body and all of that also talks about the kingdom. So in, in chapter 15, verse 20, Paul says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Because since by man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. The first order is Christ the firstfruits. That took place at the resurrection of Jesus. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. We're going to really zero in on that in the future. When the Lord returns, that's when the resurrection of the dead believers will take place. Then comes the end, which is the end of this creation, when the kingdom has already been restored and been reigned and been justified and will be folded back into the total 
kingdom of God. So I'm going to read this. There's a lot of pronouns. I'm going to replace the pronouns for you so that you can follow it. Then comes the end. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When God the Father has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For Jesus must reign until God has put all his enemies under Jesus' feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. I want you to keep that in mind. We're going to get to that. For God the Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when the Holy Spirit says all things are in subjection, it is evident that God the Father is accepted because He's the one who put all things in subjection to Jesus. And when all things are subjected to Jesus, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. Now you may not understand all that, but you can see that the kingdom, establishing the kingdom, bringing the earth into full control under God, is part of the plan of God and the return of Jesus. So that the kingdom will go from Jerusalem over all the earth and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And when God is finally vindicated in all the earth, then and only then will this be dissolved and move into the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. And so, as Zechariah says... You can find Zechariah chapter 14 real easy. Just go to Matthew and turn back two books. In chapter 14 verse 9 it says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be one and his name one. That's where Paul's getting this. That God may be all in all. I have no idea what that totally means. And I've been reading a lot of commentaries. And neither do they. Okay, Everybody's got speculation. What we know is whatever the relationship between the Word and the Spirit and the Father were in the beginning. After all of this manifestation, it, it will be in that context again. And we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So, how do we live in this kingdom which is, in some sense, here? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But he also said to pray thy kingdom come. There is a sense in which the kingdom of God is here, and a sense in which the kingdom of God is not yet. Well, we know that the Lord is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. We are waiting for the time when He will make uh, His enemies His footstool. And we don't know when that will be. We know that there will be a wedding supper and we are to be prepared for that because we're the bride. We should be preparing ourselves to be holy and without spot to be presented to our husband. And, And the kingdom and the marriage will commence at that coming when the bridegroom cometh. 
So you and I are part of the kingdom of God because our citizen as citizenship, as Scripture says, is in heaven. But we also belong to the nations. We are of those who are of every tribe and every tongue and every uh, group. And we will be part of the established and restored kingdom. Not as Israel, but with Israel. Not replacing Israel, but we will rule and reign with him, Paul says, if in this life we suffer with him. So we must watch for the bridegroom. That's what the parables keep telling us, because we are the bride. We must live as light and salt in this present dark and evil generation. We must obey the commandments, as Jesus says, (coughs) those who hear them and do them and teach others to do them, will be great in the kingdom of heaven when it comes on earth. And those who ignore them, what I call layaway Christians, I don't need to worry about the commandments, I'll just wait for the resurrection. They will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Thank God they'll be in the kingdom. But they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. So we have work to do in this context. So the kingdom of God is something that we have to see as a diaspora. Um, If you and I lived in another country as Americans, uh, we would have our allegiance to this country, but we would be in another country. We would be in that country, but not of that country. And we would have to struggle with how to render to our country the allegiance due it, and to that country the obedience due it. That's the idea. You and I must remember that first and foremost, we belong to the kingdom of God. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and Satan, who now controls all the nations, to the kingdom of God's Son, which is the kingdom of light. And we should live as that light and struggle to raise our children with an understanding that we are pilgrims and strangers in this land, even though to some extent we have a dual citizenship. Because even in the kingdom to come, apparently we'll be Americans. And we'll probably be Americans in the new heavens and new earth because even there the scripture talks about the nations. So the oneness that we have in the body of the Messiah is not sameness. It is, it is making all of the kingdoms of the earth now the kingdoms of our God and of His Messiah. And if we leave this piece out of our eschatology, we will misinterpret the verses and the parables and the promises regarding the second coming. So, I've given you the world that was, the world that is, the world that will be. I've given you that we are created from dust and the breath of God. And that is what we are supposed to stay. Death separates that. But resurrection fixes that permanently. So that we will be embodied like his resurrected body. We have talked about the covenants of Noah and the covenants of Abraham, the covenant of Moses, the covenant of David, and the new covenant, so that we have that context. And now we see that the kingdom of heaven is going to come to the kingdom of earth because it's the kingdom from heaven. We won't go to heaven. Heaven will come to us.
Next week, we have to look at those books that are open before the judge and think about what real salvation and judgment is. And then we can start looking at the details of where are the dead and what will be the final states and all of those things. So let's pray.